Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, as usual. Then I'm joined by the actress Logan Browning, who stars in Dear White People and The Perfection. Being carefree and black is an act of revolution. I think enjoying your life and having fun are ways that you can be radical. Now, my advice this week is simple. I spent the last five days with my niece and nephew, who are eight and six, and what I realized is that fear is something we learn. I was with them and they just went through the world so fearless. Like they went through the world ready to tackle these obstacles and walk into things that I had learned that like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that or I'm gonna be a little nervous or I think I might get hurt. And while some of that is growing and some of that is helpful, so much of the fear that we learn is stuff that we need to unlearn. So I've spent the last five days unlearning some of the fears that I saw younger people really conquer already. Let's do this. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith, Tired Dad, number three, at... <laughs> I can't even do it right. Sleepy Dad. And following you is Tired Uncle, DeRay. Whoop, whoop. This is DeRay at <laughs> DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. You know, I will say DeRay, I was with DeRay um, for the past five days. And she said Twitter once, and I was like, ha ha, that's the pod, that's the pod. <laughs> but you all were together in what is supposed to be the happiest place on earth, am I right? Yeah, we were at Disney World. I had not been to Disney World since I was a kid, and I... Was it Disney World or Disneyland? We were at Disney World in Orlando. Oh, okay. Uh, we stayed at the Animal Kingdom Lodge. I feel bad, because it definitely was those, you know, animals. I didn't realize how big, I mean, Sam, you know, because you're from Orlando, but Disney World is huge. Like, they own so much land that it's sort of wild massive it's like the whole economy of orlando we used to go every summer when i was a kid which like shout out to my parents and that sacrifice because ooh we disney is expensive <laughs> that was like our family vacation every year and i hadn't been in years and went back to speak at a conference a couple of weeks ago and i had like a full-on emotional breakdown because it made me think of my dad I can't describe it. It's something about like the way the water smells and you can kind of smell it all through the atmosphere that as soon as it hit me, it just reminded me of my whole childhood. And then I stayed at one of the Disney resorts and like the place where my room was, the balcony looked out onto a river and then the monorail is like elevated above the river and it was just magical and you walk in and like, you know, the Sleeping Beauty song is playing. Yeah. And I was just like... Oh, I miss my dad so much. What a wonderful childhood. I was oh, kind man. of a mess. But all that to say, Disney World is a magical, very expensive place. When they hit you with that, when you reach upon a star melody, that's when you know it's over. There were so many things to remember, but I will say we watched the fireworks and they live up to the hype. It was <laughs> incredible. The Cinderella's castle becomes a canvas for projections and it's like that was actually really well done and then mm. we did Fantasmic which is like a water show about Mickey the Sorcerer and the water essentially is the screen for projections and it's like that was actually really well done I did all the roller coasters I'm afraid of roller coasters I did them I was proud of myself there's one that goes 60 miles an hour y'all 
That is a fast. Is it? Disney World really doesn't have a lot of big roller coasters. Don't worry about it, DeRay. I got you. If you're scared of roller coasters, then like 30 miles per hour, 60 miles per hour doesn't matter. If you went on the Everest one at Animal Kingdom, I think that's like the only Oh, I've never done that. Legit roller coaster. As someone who also grew up afraid of roller coasters, <laughs> I stand in solidarity with you. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't rock with roller coasters until I got to college. And like we did like a spring break trip to, um, what's that place called? Uh, Six Flags. Six and, Flags. you know, I was in college. You know, college, you go. You not, Some people, like, do a wholesale, reinvent themselves. I wasn't trying to reinvent myself, but, you know, I was trying to improve upon the area, <laughs> the areas for growth. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, go, I'll ride roller coasters all the time. And I, you just, I just, <laughs> just, oh, yeah, I, I grew up on a roller coaster. <laughs> and I, I just pushed through. But sometimes you just got pushed through. Um, I, I will see say. Being like, yeah, they call me roller coaster bear. <laughs> they call me like, roller coaster. <laughs> no, truly. <laughs> Uh, but I will say it's interesting because I have such a different way of thinking about vacation now that I have kids. And and we were talking about people who bring their toddlers and like little infants to Disneyland, Don't Disney do World. And I was like, there is no chance that I'm about to bring my kids to any of these places for several more years for me. I mean, like you, I want it to yeah. be like imprinted in your memory. I don't want to waste yeah. thousands of dollars on you, you know, still spitting up on me while... I'm like, I want to go on the roller coaster. You holding me back. I don't want to feel that way about my child. <laughs> Nobody wants you're, to do that. <laughs> you're like that parent that gives an avocado for your birthday. You're like, you're not going to remember this. So All right. Here's whatever was in the fridge. Play with it. It's really wild. I remember, so last time I went to Disney was, I don't know, maybe a couple of months ago. And I bought the ticket to get in. There was some issue with the ticket. So I had to go to the customer service desk. This was at Animal Kingdom. And the couple in front of me in the line, when they got up to the front, they were talking about, so for some reason they bought a ticket, the ticket wasn't working. And they were with really little kids and they were talking about having saved up money for like decades Mm. in order to go to Disney World. And then they went with these little kids and like, you know, the kids weren't going to remember it. You know, this was like a lot of money and it's a mess sometimes. So definitely save up, go, but go when the kids remember it because they're going to get their money's worth. Disney for sure, and the Orlando area's entire economy is going to be hopefully benefited. So for my news, I'm talking about how Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee proclaimed this past Saturday as Nathan Bedford Forest Day in the state of Tennessee. And it's a day of observation to honor the former Confederate general and the early Ku Klux Klan leader who also has a bus on display at the state capitol. Per state law, the Tennessee governor is tasked with issuing proclamations for six separate days of special observation, which include the July 13th, Nathan Bedford Forest Day, must pertain to the Confederacy. During his campaign for governor and his first few weeks of office, under pressure and scrutiny, Bill Lee maintained that he was opposed to removing the Nathan Bedford Forest bust from its current location outside of the Senate and House chambers in the Capitol, explaining that he believes it would be, quote, a mistake to whitewash history profound irony in that statement. Lee himself, earlier this year, had to apologize because he participated in Old South parties at Auburn University and as a member of the Kappa Alpha Order fraternity, which lists Robert E. Lee as its spiritual founder. He dressed in a Confederate Army uniform, which many people, you know, will say as a member of that fraternity did to honor Robert E. Lee at that time. But that is obviously not an excuse for 
dressing up like someone who fought a war to maintain and expand the institution of slavery. But we're not here to focus on Bill Lee. We are here to focus on Bedford Forrest because not a lot of people know who Nathan Bedford Forrest is. He's not as well known as Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis. But I can tell you about Nathan Bedford Forrest. He operated slave yards in Tennessee uh, before the Civil War where he smuggled people illegally from Africa and sold them in and around Memphis, You might be saying, wait, Clint, I thought that slavery was legal during this time before the Civil War. Well, it was illegal to bring people into the United States to sell because in 1807, Congress banned the importation of enslaved people from Africa. And Bedford was a part of a lucrative black market of people who continued smuggling Africans into the country even after it had been deemed against federal law. Horatio Eden, who was a child sold from Forest Yard, remembered the place and talked about it like this. He says, quote, We were all kept in these rooms, but when an auction was held or buyers came, we were brought out and paraded two or three around a circular brick walk in the center of the stockade. The buyers would stand nearby and inspect us as we went by, stop us and examine us. During the Civil War, Forrest served as Confederate general, presided over the slaughter of hundreds of Black Union troops who were attempting to surrender in Fort Pillow, Tennessee. Uh, For context, during the Civil War, the way battles were fought, if you were trying to surrender, then they were supposed to either let you retreat or take you as a prisoner of war, not slaughter you after you have waved white flag and put your weapons down, which is what happened in Fort Pillow. But this happened because Confederates, especially Confederates like Bedford Forrest, did not see Black people fighting for the Union as soldiers. They saw them as slaves who were participating in a slave rebellion and were thus subject to the consequences of a slave rebellion, and in this case, execution. After he lost, Bedford, as I mentioned before, served as the Ku Klux Klan's first ever Grand Wizard, making the white supremacist terror organization a centerpiece of Southern and American life, killing and terrorizing Black people with impunity. So all that's to say, it's not just that Tennessee has decided to celebrate a Confederate, it is that they picked basically the worst Confederate, right? Like they picked the person who was a slave trader, who founded the Ku Klux Klan, who slaughtered black people during the Civil War. Being among the worst Confederates is quite a title, but I would certainly put the founder of the Ku Klux Klan up there. And uh, it's just a reminder, you know, that the lost cause mythology has been incredibly successful over the past century and a half, and that there's a lot more work to do to help people sort of unlearn this mythology that allows folks to celebrate someone who all historical evidence points to as being a terrible person and someone who, more importantly, someone who stood and represented something that runs counter to all of the values we claim to believe in. So here's what I find particularly fascinating is that as we've been having the public dialogue about Nathan Bedford Forrest and reminding people of his absolutely grotesque history, people will inevitably pipe up and say, well, it's unfair to tell the story about that part of his life without including the fact that he renounced his previous behaviors later in life. So let's be clear. First of all, unless the amount to which you renounce and then put that renunciation into action, undoing the harm that you have done, then your rhetorical regret doesn't actually matter to me all of that much. That's number one. 
But number two, if the basis of the celebration of this day were based on this idea of reform and that anybody can, you know, turn around and see what they did wickedly before, then those folks might have a point. It wouldn't be a very good point still, but they'd have a point. But here's what the actual proclamation says. The actual proclamation simply describes Forrest as, quote, a recognized military figure in American history and a native Tennessean. So they're literally, A, whitewashing the history of this person. They are sanitizing it beyond recognition. But most importantly, what the proclamation basically says is like, he was a well-known guy, he fought in a war, and he's from Tennessee. Look, if all it takes is being well-known and from Tennessee, here are some people that you can actually celebrate. You can celebrate Minnie Pearl, the great actress, Dolly Parton, who was apparently born in Tennessee. I didn't know that. Nikki Giovanni from Knoxville, Tennessee. Apparently Aretha Franklin was born in Memphis. I understand that Detroit feels ownership over her, but y'all can have an Aretha Franklin day too. Isaac Hayes, the incredible composer and funk musician, also from Tennessee. If the requirement is that you are famous and from Tennessee, there are a whole lot of people that you can put on a pedestal when you knock Nathan Bedford Forrest off. So it was interesting looking at the history of this. Apparently Forest Day, as they call it, uh, has been considered a holiday in Tennessee since 1921, which was about the time that you started seeing all of these Confederate monuments being put up and a resurgence of white supremacist terrorism and huge increase in membership in the Klan. So that's sort of the historical context for where this came from and why it's still happening today. It's also interesting because beyond the state holiday, which itself is problematic, there continue to be schools that are named after Nathan Bedford Forrest all across the country, especially in the South. And again, this is the worst among bad people, right? He's like literally the worst example of all the Confederates who themselves are the worst examples of humanity. I continue to be shocked at sort of how that history is often swept under the rug, how people may not even know about Nathan Bedford Forrest and the role that he played in creating the Klan and the Four Pillow Massacre and all of these other devastating examples of violence in the nation's history were committed by him. And so, you know, I, I'm hopeful that this will be changed. Obviously, this current governor doesn't seem to be interested in changing that law that proclaims this a holiday, but you know, I'm hopeful that Tennesseans will get him out of office and put somebody in office who is willing to celebrate actually good people, people who fought for freedom and for civil rights and against people like Nathan Bedford Forrest. This makes me think of that Milan Kundera quote that says, the struggle of people against power is a struggling of memory against forgetting. That so much of what white supremacy demands is a forgetting. Is to say that like this guy was just like a war hero, that he just fought for people. And it's like, no, he was actually a war criminal who massacred black people as a part of his beliefs. And just like Brittany said, renouncing them at the end and sort of fake renouncing them and not undoing the damage caused doesn't actually help. But the other thing that this made me think of was a study that came out recently or a chart that got published in the New York Times. And this is such a random connection, but what it says is that white evangelicals are now just 15% of the population, but because they vote so regularly, they're half of a potential electoral majority. And that really blew my mind. But why this piece of news made me think of the role of white evangelicals in terms of their percentage of the population relative to their percentage of civic life and participation is that you can see people like the governor of Tennessee, like holding on to the past. And all it takes is like a small concentrated group of people 
to just try and like bring the system to a, either a screeching halt or to reinforce these values and beliefs that harm other people. And it has a lot of power. And, I, you know, when all the monuments got taken down, we talked about symbols of hate and power hate. And we don't need to memorialize the things that have caused a lot of damage. Like Brittany said, there are a ton of people that we should support in Tennessee that we don't have to do this. And remember, Memphis has one of the worst legacies of police violence that we have in the country, that they kept records of all the civil rights leaders. They were forced to turn them over in a court case, and instead they just literally burned the room where the records were. It was nuts. So, so much work to do. And I did not know, Clint, that this guy was the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. It made me even more upset. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local Tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. So my news is about food, which is pretty on brand for me. If you know me, I love to eat and I love a little show called Top Chef. And one of the things that I noticed in this last season in particular that struck a very different chord with me than in previous seasons was the lack of familiarity and appreciation for various kinds of African cuisine. I found myself increasingly frustrated with the show. I ended up tweeting about it because there were so many chefs who were saying, I've never had jollof rice before. I've never tasted this. I've never tasted that. And there was an appreciation for learning something new. But because those types of cuisines, flavors, textures are not nearly as lauded in the culinary space, the contestant who was consistently cooking African food ended up leaving early right before the finals. And a lot of people think he should have won the whole thing. Now, I wasn't there. I wasn't tasting the food. But what I do know is that I saw reflected something that I see across fields and industries and something that we talk about all the time is that there is a centering of a white dominant culture in the culinary space that became really, really obvious on this last season of Top Chef. And so actually an article in Eater magazine from Korsha Wilson reminded me of this and actually helps explain why this is happening. So essentially, the type of cuisine and the techniques that are centered in the culinary tradition are French. They make up the canon. It's the sauces. It's the basic techniques. It's all of the ways in which chefs in the academies are taught to cook, that this is the foundation of being a good chef. Culinary school can also cost upwards of $30,000 a year. So as you can imagine, not only is this cost prohibitive for a lot of people of color and people living in low-income circumstances, it's also culturally prohibitive for a lot of people who want to learn more about the cuisines of their ancestors, who want to bring their own culture to the forefront, but their cultures are relegated to just tiny, tiny moments throughout their course curriculum. The author talked about one course that lasted 48 hours in order to cover the entirety of Pan-Asian cuisine. There was another example where a chorus devoted a single afternoon to Southern cuisine, and the only items that were cooked were fried chicken and collard greens. So clearly these are stereotypes and not reflective of the rich variety of Southern cuisine, of Asian cuisines, etc. And we find that Mexican cuisine, American Indian food, African food, Middle Eastern food, South American food, Asian food, that all of it is either left off of the course catalog altogether relegated to tiny bits, or people are expected to go learn that on their own time and on their own dime. So this is the kind of dominant culture that we see perpetuated in every single industry. Even in education, the pedagogies that we are taught are so often ones that are based in Eurocentric models of teaching and have nothing to do with what's best for multicultural classrooms. So this is a familiar pattern. It is a familiar trope. And I knew that it was when I watched Top Chef, but I really appreciated this Eater article not only for breaking it down, but for challenging culinary institutes to do better. 
oftentimes one of the effects of this Eurocentric approach to what's considered fine dining or fine cuisine or sort of high-end cuisine is that it impacts sort of the economics of the food industry, where if you are, and I think about this is often the case when we talk about cuisine from, whether it's from Jamaica or from China, from Japan, there's sort of this idea that the cuisines are supposed to be cheap, right? That the food is not supposed to be, you know, $50 a plate. It's not supposed to be like expensive sort of high-end prices for those types of food, despite the fact that they're incredibly complex, incredibly delicious, incredibly flavorful, and have all of the other aspects and more of, let's say, French cuisine or other European cuisines. So in reacting to this, first of all, I'm curious sort of how new chefs, particularly folks creating restaurants that are providing sort of higher end cuisine from other cultures, how they are sort of disrupting that industry and getting around these existing and oppressive notions. And then I'm also wondering, how do we continue to challenge uh, through food, these ideas and these standards that seek to exclusively provide for what is considered a fancy cuisine or what's considered cuisine worth spending money on compared to what's considered sort of something that's often undervalued for the actual quality of the food? Yeah, and I take umbrage at the fact that jollof has been invoked in this negative way. As folks may or may not know, my mother-in-law is Nigerian. And years ago, when I was in the early stages of dating my wife and I visited the family for the first time, my future mother-in-law at that point hit me with the casual bowl of jollof. But it was really like a jollof flex because I hadn't had jollof. I don't know if I'd ever had jollof before, but... I did, and it was remarkable. And as folks know, like Jollof exists in Nigeria, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Liberia. In DC, there's actually a Jollof competition. And, you know, even being at this Jollof rice competition was this moment in which you saw people sort of, I was going to say, subverting the sort of like dominant normative conceptions of like what culinary competitions are supposed to look like. But it wasn't subversion, it was people lifting up and celebrating and engaging in the cultural cuisine and, and culinary traditions that they're familiar with. And it's always fascinating to think about which types of traditions are lifted up and which type of traditions are presented on a television show and which types aren't. And not only to just see it on television, but to see it lifted up and celebrated in the same way that one would celebrate an ability to cook French or Italian cuisine, in that it carries the same cultural and social currency as any of those things. And the idea that it doesn't is inevitably and intrinsically linked to a history of white supremacy and limited notions of what constitutes as sort of highbrow culinary or cultural production. Uh, do any of you know who James Hemings is? Yeah, James Hemings is Sally Hemings' brother. Yes. And he was Thomas Jefferson's cook yep. who traveled with Thomas Jefferson yep. to France. And so Sally and James went to France with Thomas. And then Thomas Jefferson eventually let James go free. But James struggled with some issues and died at an early death. It's very sad. But he was Thomas Jefferson's cook and learned a lot of sort of brought together traditional sort of African-American and traditional French cooking blended them together and made these bomb joints. And um, most of the food that Thomas Jefferson is credited with introducing into the American cuisine is actually the food of James Hemings. So I wanted to bring that here because there's such a forgotten history. Uh, you should read 
Anything by Michael Twitty. So Michael Twitty is a historian of food, which is incredible. Uh, his work is good. There's a really good article in Eater called The Forgotten History of Black Chefs because the industry of professional food is overwhelmingly white. But we know that there's a tradition of black cooks in this country that literally fed all the families. You know, farm to table is not new. Like white people didn't make up farm to table. That's not like a new idea. People have been doing that for a long time. And I didn't know anything about James Hemings. But it was just a great example of a story that we didn't know. Even stories like Edna Lewis, who was considered the South's Julia Childs, like she was the author of Taste of Country Cooking and is credited with popularizing so much of Southern cuisine that we take for granted now as being available in most parts of the country. So wanted to bring those here. I learned a lot about the Black chefs and the legacy of Black chefs that I had no clue about. So speaking about stories that we did not know, uh, and especially those related to food, my article for this week is actually about the Jim Crow South and vanilla ice cream. In particular, I did not know that Black people were denied vanilla ice cream who lived during the Jim Crow era in the South, except on Independence Day. This article is from The Guardian, and it includes stories from a number of folks, including examples from the autobiography of Maya Angelou, as well as a number of folks who grew up during this period that told stories of being denied vanilla ice cream every day of the year, uh, except for on Independence Day. Now, apparently this wasn't set by law, although of course there are a number of segregationist and racist laws during this time, but this was rather sort of a unofficial custom by white shop owners, ice cream store owners that would refuse to give black people vanilla ice cream. There's not a whole lot of detailed information as to why, except you know you have to guess that it's to make a point about people not being able to fully access life and freedoms, including the ability to eat any flavor of ice cream. But this was just fascinating. I had no idea that this had happened. I didn't know that this was like a part of the broader series of things that Black people were denied uh, in the Jim Crow era in the South. So I wanted to bring this to the conversation. I'm wondering you know, if you all have heard about this or it makes me think of what other foods and, and other items that are sort of basic to everyday life that may not have been prohibited by law, but were prohibited by sort of the customs of white people during this time that black people were denied. This is not something I knew about either, but the first thing that I thought about when I read it was Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And in it, he talks about how difficult it is to explain to his six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that's been advertised on television and to see the tears well up in her eyes as he, quote, told her that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. Think about what that means for like a little kid to be told that you cannot have this type of ice cream. And it might seem, you know, as compared to not having access to bathroom, as compared to lynching, as compared to school segregation, this not being able to eat vanilla ice cream might seem more trivial than those things. But I think that we can't underestimate the extent to which these small sort of psychological wounds imprint themselves, especially on children. And as Dr. King talked about in the letter from a Birmingham jail, go on to shape the way that young people understand who they are in relationship to the world. And this was something I, I didn't know, but as a member of the small insidious ways that Jim Crow and that white supremacy chips away at somebody's personhood, even on the smallest and simplest of levels. 
Yeah, Clint, this is exactly what it brought to mind for me, this cycle of socialization, that as all of us grow up, we experience things in life that teach us that who we are, where we come from, what we stand for, or what we believe, will either receive punishment or reward depending on who or what you're interacting with. And these are precisely the kinds of moments that are emblazoned in your psyche, especially as a child, and they communicate to you your value and your worth through other people's lenses. And this cycle of socialization has just as much to do with law as it does with custom. So yes, if you are a child growing up in this era, you are internalizing something about yourself if you have to go sit in the back of the bus. But you are also internalizing something about yourself if you go when you ask for that vanilla ice cream cone and you get told no, and not only do you get told no, you probably get told in such a way that makes you dare not ever ask for a vanilla ice cream cone again, or even ask why you're being denied a vanilla ice cream cone. These moments are not just moments where young people of color, where Black children were made to feel other. They were specifically made to feel worse. And it's these seemingly innocuous objects, these things that don't look like they matter all that much, that are often the tools to create that kind of feeling, that are often the best used tools to create that feeling of shame, that feeling of othering, that feeling of second-class citizenship that is internalized in such a way that as you get older, you know better than to ask for certain things, right? You know to keep your head down in certain places. You know to always move to the side of the sidewalk when white people are walking toward you. You know not to talk back to certain people. You know not to talk to white women. These are the kinds of things that were customary. They had nothing to do with law. They were customary. And these were the kinds of customs that racist white people across the Jim Crow South wanted to ensure Black children knew so that they would never speak back. So I, I was kind of amazed to read this, but in so many ways I was not because of course it's a vanilla ice cream cone, just like it's a sidewalk or a swimming pool. In another example, the idea is for Black children to internalize the idea that they should never ever question the customs because they're not welcome. The other thing is a reminder that part of the work of separation is the work of dehumanization. Because when you structurally encode things that separate people, there is an aspect of dehumanization that is actually the key. So even in this moment, when people say the cruelty is the point, it's part of the work that Trump is doing around immigration is not only, like he doesn't really care about anything about people committing crimes or things like that, because that's not even true. That's not a focus for him, but it is the idea of separation in saying that something happens to those people that doesn't happen to you, so you must have made a better choice, you must be a better person, because if those people had done better, then it wouldn't be happening to them. It plays on that same logic. Part of what I did in preparing for this news, though, is I wanted to see what other laws existed around Jim Crow that I had no clue about, and there were a ton. So some of the ones I wanted to bring up, so there was, uh, in Louisiana, there were laws around circus tickets that said that at any circus where more than one race is invited or expected to attend, there will be no less than two ticket offices with individual ticket sellers and no less than two entrances. Uh, and the entrances will be at least 25 feet apart. In Mississippi, there was a law around hospital entrances that essentially said there had to be one entrance for whites and one entrance for colored patients and visitors. And they can only be used by the race for which they're prepared. 
In Florida, there were laws for juvenile delinquents that said that at no point should they ever be allowed to associate with each other or work together, and that the buildings for juvenile delinquents had to be at least one-fourth of a mile away from each other. In Georgia, there were laws about mental hospitals. There's no point where black and white patients could be housed together. And in Alabama, there were rules around nurses, and the rule said no personal corporation shall require any white female nurse to nurse in wards or rooms in hospitals, either public or private, in which Negro men are placed. And it was just a reminder that A, that wasn't too long ago, and the vestiges of those things still exist today. And B, that separation is rooted in the desire to dehumanize people, because when people are dehumanized, it's easier to do diabolical things to them. So my news uh, was fascinating to me. It's based on an article that came out in Vice. It says Black children at white schools are more likely to be told they have a learning disability. There's a new study that just came out in Society and Mental Health. So let me talk about the findings. So what they find, uh, they looked at around 400,000 kids in urban school districts between 2006 and 2012. And what they found is that Black children that go to schools with a lower proportion of Black kids to other races are more likely to be diagnosed as disabled. And what was interesting about this to me is that the guy who led this study actually was a middle school math teacher, and he was trying to just see if there could be some logic to how the diagnoses were coming. One of the things that turned out to be true is that Black kids who go to schools with not a whole lot of Black kids uh, get diagnosed more. And it is this is something that anecdotally people in education have been talking about a lot. It's important to have a study that shows it. And I think about another conclusion that comes out of this, and one of the things that the study wants people to think about is how arbitrary and how inconsistent the diagnoses around disabilities can be in schools, and that can change the trajectory of a child's life forever, especially in the public school system with regard to access to resources or access to rigor. And I just wanted to bring that here because most of us have been teachers at some point. You know, I think I've told you all before about the challenges that my brother had. We went to majority white schools for much of our life, not all of our life, but my mother had my younger brother tested at age three or four and was told he'd never learn how to read. And throughout secondary school, the accommodations that were made for white students with learning disabilities were far and beyond what my brother was getting until my mom came up there and advocated for him. And in so many ways, this system continues to set up children of color to fail because either you are being shoved into a space that you do not belong because you are seen as a behavioral concern or something else, or if you do actually belong and you require those services, they're not given to you at equal rates. So I wasn't surprised by this in some ways because I've watched my family experience this on the other end, but it is a part of the same psychosis a part of the same shuffling of kids of color around, especially in wider spaces where people don't actually take the time to determine how to best educate students of diverse backgrounds, but rather get frustrated when they don't fit within the system and structure that works for every other child, seemingly, and that was created for a dominant culture. And so they will push them into places where it just makes it easier for adults. So I went to an elementary school that was predominantly white. It was only, I'm thinking maybe two or three percent black. And I remember in this must have been I don't know third or fourth grade when they began to assign students to gifted programs. The students, you know, all took tests. I think it was like the IQ test or whatever it was. And then if you scored above some certain threshold, then they would 
place you into gifted. For some reason, I scored above the threshold, but was not placed into gifted. And I remember my mom having to fight for me to be in the gifted program, like all the other students. So fast forward, uh, and actually examining the research on this, we find that not only are Black students in white schools more likely to be identified as having a learning disability, but also they are less likely to be placed into gifted programs as white students with the same test scores. So there was a study that was done, a, a nationally representative study using the Early Childhood Longitudinal Database, which found that for Black students who had Black teachers, they were about equally as likely to be placed into gifted programs as white students with the same scores. But for Black students in classrooms with white teachers, they were only about one-third as likely to be placed into gifted programs as their white peers. So this is something that is another dimension of sort of systemic racism that impacts students in many different ways, depending on the student, but has the same effect of denying folks opportunities and disproportionately exposing folks to the school-to-prison pipeline and to programs that may be a mismatch with their actual student profile. Yeah, and I think this study presents a good opportunity to tell uh, a range of sort of complicated and nuanced stories about disability and the role disability plays in in academic success and mobility or lack thereof. And something that I have increasingly been thinking about and have thought about more in the sort of months following the big college admission scandal are the ways in which wealthy parents sort of will attempt to take advantage of a system that is set up to ensure that people with disabilities have proper accommodations for testing, like for the ACT or for the SAT. So, for example, like to get extra time, some wealthy parents will pay thousands of dollars to have their child evaluated for a learning disorder by a private neuropsychologist who, with a sort of wink-wink and a nudge-nudge, will write a note that will be sent to the school that says this child has ADHD or different processing issues. And 90% of the time, people seeking accommodations for the ACT or College Board test are accepted. And so you essentially have folks who are paying for extra time, right? You pay a psychologist who's going to write you a note that you want to get. Your child, who may not have ADHD or these processing issues, gets extra time that is specifically reserved for folks that do have these issues. And as a result, your child gets extended time to take this test that other children and young people won't have. And it's just another one of the sort of subtle ways that wealth manifests itself in our educational system and how it sort of takes advantage of a system that was built to lift up folks who, and support folks who are coming from backgrounds with disability and other marginalized groups. And, you know, this is one of the the sad ways that accommodations meant for those groups of people can be taken advantage of by folks who weren't meant to do it, but who have the money to pay for it. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. 
This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. And now my conversation with Logan Browning. You might know her from Dear White People or her recent movie, The Perfection. Logan! Hey, hi! Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you about what what's up with you. Yeah. Dear White People season 15,000 is coming <laughs> soon. How do you explain Dear White People to people who've never seen it? If people are like, what's this show about? I would describe Dear White People as... I mean, The Basics, which is a show where it's set around uh, a few African-American students at a predominantly white campus, which happens to be an Ivy League school, and how they navigate racial tensions on campus and what ensues, which is finding out that within the black community, there are a million and one iterations of how we view ourselves in the world and that we're not monolithic, uh, no one is in any community. And the general theme and idea of empathy, having anyone able to watch the show and insert themselves into a character regardless of whether or not they look like or identify with them in a visual sense or an ethnicity kind of perspective, which humanizes us all and allows you to carry that empathy into the world. You know, the show started right around the protest time five years ago, Mm -hmm. and the world has changed so much since then. How have you thought about the show's importance as the world has changed with regard to race? Yeah, when the show first started, it was close to around the time that I probably first started being interested in being a public activist using my platform Mm -hmm. because it was right around not long after Trayvon Martin was murdered. And I appreciated the show initially. Actually, I appreciated the movie initially, which kind of came before that stuff a little bit. And I appreciated it because I thought the way that the storytelling was allowed access to more than just the community that it was serving, because I personally think Dear White People is serving our community, and I think that it allows access for the people who may not know as much about our community and allows them to change their perspectives, to not ask us microaggressing questions, and to empathize in a way that, for lack of sounding cheesy, but makes the world a better place. And opening conversations between people that I think otherwise wouldn't happen because people feel like they can't talk about things like race with people who aren't their own identifying ethnicity. And how has your own willingness to talk publicly about these things changed over the past three, four, five years? The world's just so different than when the movie came out than when the show came out originally. I guess it's changed because my character is so outspoken in exploring her personal struggles with being the voice of a people on campus and with being biracial but identifying as African-American and not as biracial, kind of using both to her advantage and not really knowing where she fits in in the world and also 
with not knowing who you are, but somehow still being at the forefront, that experience of discovering her character was something that I think I was forced into discovering for myself. So her outspokenness bled into your real life. It had to. I felt a responsibility to use my platform to embolden the voices of people who weren't being heard. And similarly, that's, you know, what people do to Sam. And in the iterations of the seasons and as she's had her multiple experiences, even in the third season, what happens is she's done. She literally says, I'm done with your white people. Verbatim, Sam says that. And I feel her in that because it's not that she's done so much with being an activist or the movement. She's done with all of the negativity that comes in her life when she was just trying to do a good thing. I think when she says she's done, she realizes that what's really happening is her shell of a person is being exposed. And sometimes you need to deal with that expose in private to really, you know, heal your brokenness so the world just doesn't rip you apart and you end up dead on the floor. You know what I mean? Like once that part of you is exposed, you want it to become a new beautiful shell and not just boil and drip outside of you until you're like lava on the asphalt. (laughs) How have you thought about race differently since you've been on the show? It keeps changing. It keeps changing so much. I mean, when I first started, I felt like Logan, I felt so emboldened as a black woman. And I never really considered the fact that, you know, I consider how I see myself in the world. I never really considered the fact that when people see me, yes, they see a black woman, but they also see someone who, is she mixed? Is she biracial? Is she, well, she is light-skinned. I never considered those things because, like, when you grow up and all you see, like, with your parents being and kind of influencing you with black culture, that's just what you see. And so I did start to, that started to adjust for me and realizing, obviously I knew what, I've known what colorism is my whole life, but And this was a little bit before Do White People. For instance, uh, one of my best friends, Camille Winbush, even hearing her stories, we've gone to parties and literally someone will walk up to us and just talk to Logan. Literally just talk to Logan. And to hear that was an early kind of seed planted in changing my ideas. And then so the show, dealing with that on the show, not just within the actual script, but in my conversations with Antoinette, with Ashley, with Nia, and not just my conversations, but hearing them in their press talk about what they hope for little girls who look like them and what they hope for them to see. So growing up as an adult and hearing these women who I just think are so beautiful and smart and all of the things talk about their brokenness hurts me because I feel they're my sisters and I feel this deep hope that I, how can I make sure that life is better for them? And I wish that everyone else felt that way too. Is there a scene that you'll never forget? Um, The scene that I will never forget is episode five, season one, where Reggie has the gun pulled on him because it felt so visceral and real because it was something, it is something that we've all experienced, whether it's personally or through the media, through a friend, and watching Marquis perform that authentically and watching the emotions that he went through. I remember him literally leaving the set and going outside and being completely broken on the sidewalk and all of us going out there to comfort him. What are the issues that you spend your time speaking about in public? I naturally gravitate towards things that obviously affect the people who look like me in the world and who I represent in the world. So women of color, black women, 
women, black people, black men, because the men in my family and my friends and women's rights. And even missing black children is something that stays on my mind just because I, I met a woman who has a nonprofit in Georgia called Peas in Their Pods, which represents poor black Latino children who end up being deemed as runaways by the police because when the police go to file a report, they automatically assume and it's very dangerous. And when they assume they don't get an Amber Alert because you don't get an Amber Alert if you're deemed a runaway. And it's dangerous because when that happens, those children end up lost in sex trafficking. So that's something that stays on my mind. Homelessness, everything honestly stays on my mind. Chloe Cares and her nonprofit that she has. It's honestly everything, but I think that race relations and women's rights probably stay at the forefront. And Perfection. Yeah. It's a movie, It's not a, a movie. Show. Yeah, it's a thriller that follows Allison Williams' character and myself, who are both cello prodigies. Allison Williams' character's name is Charlotte, and she is rising in her fame, and then she gets sick while we're in this conservatory in Boston, and she leaves. I still am in the conservatory, and I become an extremely celebrated cellist, the prized possession of this conservatory. And so once her mother dies, she comes back into the picture and to judge this contest in Shanghai, which is where we meet. And then ensues what starts off as just two girls with a deep connection, but maybe there is competition. You're not really sure. But it's got so many plot twists, it turns into several different films. This film is a vehicle for deeper subject matter, which is the direction that, you know, this genre is going in. You know, there's so many people now who understand the arts as a form of activism in a way that I think 10 years ago that wasn't like a popular conversation. Mm -hmm. Now it's like a lot of art happening. What's your advice to young artists who are trying to use their platform to do good in the world? That their voice matters. I feel like so many people box themselves in terrified that the world doesn't see them. But we can see with the Avas and the Lenas and the Justins that all you have to have is a dream. And that and those people didn't all of a sudden wake up and have those careers. They worked at them. They had other jobs and other careers. And it's no different. If you have a dream to tell a meaningful story, then you, you just do. It's not always about trying to make sure that it's on a big platform. It's just telling the story and getting it out there. And then I think the right people will see it. How are you thinking about 2020? What will be the issues that will be important for you as you make a decision? Like, is healthcare going to be really important to you? Or is it going to be like free college? Or is it, I don't know, like, what are the... Yeah. Um, I ask because there are a lot of people, because there's so many people running, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people listening who are also trying to figure out, right. like, what is important to them. Yeah. You know? It's very important to me stopping police brutality. And a lot of that is dealt in individual states. It's hard because even with this Alabama abortion ban, I even hate saying this. I want to talk about it right now, but then I'm also wary of, am I being tricked into missing something else? Right. You know? And there seems to be something else every single day. You're like, always, what is going on? Always. But I still think it's important to talk about those things. How have you seen Hollywood change with regard to race, if not, like, maybe it didn't change at all, in the past five, six years? Faces. When I think of a general sense, I see more face. We're back in the face of people. But I had this conversation with Wendy Raquel Robinson, I think, because I remember in the 90s when there were 
a lot of black faces in television and film. Obviously, you have all of the sitcoms, Steve Harvey Show, Martin, Fresh Prince, Sister, Sister, Moesha, literally, the the list goes on. You have all the classic films, you know. I'm not going to go down the list, but you know. And so I thought, where did they go? How did that happen? The moment we're having right now has happened before. And her story to me was that Black faces were used as a vehicle at the time, at least in regards to sitcoms, to launch a lot of those networks and launch their sitcoms. And once they got their numbers, they started slowly taking away those faces and implementing shows that had white faces. And I think that it's one of those things, again, where I'm like, is the wool being pulled over my eyes? Because this moment existed before. So what's happening right That's now? That's a good point. The moment existed before. Yeah. That's a good point. It actually is weird to me when we all talk about not seeing ourselves on television, because we we kind of did. Right. And like, we all forget it. Moesha, I forgot about, um, I forgot the Steve Harvey show was like a thing before. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and even in films, in films... The PJs? I've, yeah. I've, and the show with, um, you know, Raven Simone's show on Disney Channel. That's like, so Raven. That's so Raven. And think about all the movies. Keenan like, and Kel? Yeah, Keenan and Kel, Good Burger the film, House Party. I mean, maybe there weren't a lot of them and maybe it feels like they're... No, there kind of were. When it comes to sitcoms, there kind of were a lot. And so it's interesting to talk about and think about why they disappeared and will this happen again? And I'm hoping that what's different now is that we're focusing on getting more people of color and black people behind the lens so that there is an opportunity for those things to stay. And maybe what's different also is that that was sitcom and now we're moving into big box office. When you think about things like Get Out and Us, not that Jordan Peele has to like lead the charge for every black person being on a, on screen, but I don't know. I don't know the answer. And last two questions is, what do you say to people whose hope has been challenged in this moment? That there are a lot of people who like protested, emailed, called, went to the meetings, testified, and the world still is not getting better in ways they wanted to get better. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those people? I think that it's all about perspective. Sometimes when the thing that you're fighting for doesn't turn out exactly the way you hoped, you feel like you failed. But if you could take a step back and look at maybe all of the people who joined the movement that you were a part of or all the people who learned about the movement you were a part of or even how you personally were changed, just that in itself is to me hopeful because it means that people can evolve and be enlightened and you just have to keep going and that it's not easy. Like we all have to wipe away this idea that something that took years to build will take a day to break and we just have to keep going. And last question that we ask everybody is what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that's stuck with you? The best piece of advice would be two sayings that my parents have always said to me. My late father always said, have fun. If I was going to an audition or if I was going somewhere, what do I always tell you? Have fun. Yep, that's it. Have fun. And my mom, similarly, she would say, well, she's still living. My mom says to enjoy life. And I think that it reminds me of Ashley's character in Dear White People saying um, sometimes being carefree and black is an act of revolution. I think enjoying your life and having fun are ways that you can be radical. And it's like being the sunshine. When you have a light, you allow other people to be illuminated and to feel that, that warmth and that heat. And it just permeates. Um, well, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. 
Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.